Today on Ag News Daily. And we've seen every country where uh, there's uh, an increase in international trade and foreign investment, we've seen a rise in diet-related illness. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a Friday episode here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm excited to be back from Ireland and joining you all again, along with my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. It is good to hear your voice, but honestly, I'm kind of disappointed. I figured you'd come back with a little uh, bit of an Irish accent. You know, it's funny you say that because, like, being around people that have an Irish accent, it almost makes you want to adopt one or kind of, like, try and talk like that so you fit in a little bit more. At least I do. That's how I feel when I go. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things they say about Midwesterners is we have a of a flat accent. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, I was listening to your interviews, and it's, they're very sing-songy. In, in their accent yeah, well, is to my ears. It's interesting, too, because, like, depending on what part of the country you're from, definitely easier or harder to understand. And there's a little bit of a twang to some of the parts of Ireland and some of the accents. So sure. very interesting. Just like, just like in the U.S. Absolutely. When we talked to Ashley Arrington, you know, we almost need a translator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we're glad to have you back, Delaney. We've got a lot of news going on in agriculture, yeah, but bring like us it. up to date. What happened in Ireland? What did you learn sure. Was it worth going over there? So it's really focused um, to Ireland producers at the moment, but they're really trying to bring in people from around the world. That's kind of why I got asked to go, was they're looking for North American journalists to help bring some of the market share there or bring some of the updates from Ireland to people in the U.S. So I would compare it to Farm Progress Show. That would probably be the closest thing, except much, much, much bigger. So there were about... They're expecting, I think, 250,000 people, 240,000 people, something like that, over the three-day span. Um, I think numbers were going to be a little lower this year because, unfortunately, on Wednesday, they had to cancel the event outright because they were getting some effects from or some backlash from Hurricane Florence. Uh, so they were just having it Tuesday, Thursday. But it was just crazy, the amount of stuff that was going on. Uh, most of it was dedicated to agriculture, but then there was also a little bit about I guess health and food. There was a fashion show going on. They had, oh, yeah, they had a like plowing contest. Showing off Carhartts or the Irish no. equivalent. What was it? Um, it was no, it was like women, uh, showing off like boutique clothes that they could wear at the plowing contest with their boots, and literally it's like <laughs> rubber boots. Um, so they were up and down the aisle in muck boots, effectively. Well, they were on a stage, but yeah. Yeah, catwalk, catwalk, right. Yeah, right. Uh, so that was huh. kind of interesting. And then they had, of course, the plowing championships, plowing contests. So that was literally tractors pulling uh, steel board or uh, Mold plows, moldboard plows. Yeah. Was it? What, so I've heard, and of course, you know, you and I have kind of missed plowing. You know, mm-hmm. the, nobody does that really around in Iowa anymore. And when I talk to growers, they say the plowing contests of old, they were judged on straightness of mm-hmm. the line. Yep. With auto steer, I mean, that can't be an issue anymore. Is that still what they judged them on? You know, that's a good question. They talked about it at one point in time, and I can't remember exactly what they were judging it on, but I know... There were a bunch of different categories, like there were age categories, there were different types of equipment categories. Hmm. So I'm not sure if it was straightness of line or depth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, the growers that you had a chance to talk with, just to put things in perspective for our mm-hmm. listeners, you said 280-some thousand people were going to come to this thing? 240,000. 
240,000. Yep, it was it was predominantly uh, targeted at Irish farmers and producers. And then they also had a lot of schools there, a lot of tour groups like myself and the group I was with, which was Enterprise Ireland, which is basically a government entity um, that is focused on growing startups within Ireland. So that really was kind of where I stuck to the whole time. So they have what's called an innovation arena, and it's uh, Enterprise Ireland, which is a government entity, has helped fund or uh, provide startup dollars for some of these really cool ag tech companies, and they house them within one building um, at the Plowing Championship. And so just to highlight kind of the technology that's coming for Ireland and just some really cool stuff that we'll get to uh, next week and the, the following couple of weeks that I think is going to be interesting technology. Of course, a lot of those companies are starting in Ireland, but I think they have a couple of them. I was just blown away. I think they really have some potential to come even into the U.S. Very cool. Well, that is fantastic, Delaney. Did you meet any growers of bizarre crops that we're not used to over here? Uh, bizarre crops. Yeah, any not, peat moss farmers. Yeah, or, not really. You know. I mean, grazing is a big deal over there. Um, what did they, uh, Doctor uh, Teddy Cashman, who you, I think you played yesterday, mm-hmm. what did he say, something like 80 or 90% of dairy cattle are grazed? Yeah, because uh, yeah, their pastures grow year-round right. or, or darn near year-round. So it, it was just interesting to see some of the problems and challenges that they're having and some of the solutions that are being created because their industry is so focused on grazing, having fresh, fresh grass, um, and then also just the fact that they're really dairy-centric right now. Interesting. And actually, that's going to kind of lead me right into my first news story, Delaney, if you don't mind me taking Yeah, that a- sounds great. So USDA issued a report, their uh, a monthly milk production report for the U.S., and milk production climbed 1.4% year over year in the month of August. Production per cow in the top 23 dairy states came in at 1,974 pounds, the highest on record going back to 2003, and milk production in the U.S. was 18.3 billion pounds, mm. and uh the herd size has actually declined by about 4,000 head, which I know you talked about a, a yeah. couple of weeks ago. But there we go. We continue to be more and more efficient at producing milk in this country, even though, you know, prices make it make it tough for a lot of growers. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And it, it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, we, we talk about how we're in this milk oversupply, but they're also in that same kind of pattern in Ireland and a lot of other countries, it sounds like, as well. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of why we haven't yet gotten out of it is there's no real international demand right. for that oversupply. I know we've been able to powder some of it, and China's mm-hmm. been a buyer this year, yeah. but yeah, not enough. Not enough, absolutely not. Well, one buyer that is making a comeback to fill some of China's void is the EU. Mike, have you seen this today about the soybeans that they've been importing from the U.S.? Yes, 52% of U.S. beans. I can tell you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, Delaney. No, I didn't, Mike. I was on the plane all day. (laughs) Because we talked about that on yesterday's episode. But yeah, that is, that's great news. And it comes at the right time because also yesterday uh, or the day before, I talked about the new tariff list that China has unveiled. 
And at that point, I said I hadn't seen any additional ag products on that list of uh, 5,700 different products. Mm-hmm. And now that, you know, we've kind of got a chance to breathe and go through it in detail, uh, we do have ag products on this new list. Um, they've added soybean oil, corn oil, formula milk powder, mm-hmm. whey protein isolates, again, coming back to that dairy industry. They've added canned vegetables, which I thought was an interesting choice to put a tariff on. Honey, lamb, sweet, sweetened almonds, maple syrup, peas, kidney beans, sweet potatoes, which you know they can tariff all they want. I don't know why <laughs> anybody want to eat a sweet potato. And frozen strawberries are uh, additional hmm. ag products that have been hit with tariffs. I don't know where they're going to get some of these products. I mean, do they have markets for some of these foods? Well, you, you mean providers in China? Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean... I, I honestly have no idea. Listeners, if you've been to China, if you've explored some of the specialty markets or producers in China, let us know. Are they growing a lot of strawberries? I wouldn't think I, so. But I, I mean, also their their food preferences are a lot different than ours. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think the surprising thing were the oil, soybean and mm-hmm. corn oil and hops. I did mention hops. They also put a, oh. an additional tariff on hops. So beer is or at least... You know, your India pale ales in China, I suppose, are going to get more expensive, mm-hmm. uh, those hoppy brews. Um, but so that that's what China has announced they're going to put tariffs on beginning on Monday. And President Trump said if China follows through with this list of tariffs on Monday after we put our $200 billion worth of tariffs on, then the U.S. is going to go ahead and apply that additional $257 billion worth of tariffs Ugh. on every product brought in from China. And, of so, course, then the Chinese will probably retaliate yeah. you know, against that the, as well. So the $257, or $257 billion, that's on all products? Well, so right now, on Monday, mm-hmm. we will have tariffs on just about $260 million worth of oh, products coming from China. Oh, and the 257000 is the rest, which would equivalent yep. to about, whatever, $505 billion yep. or the value of the product. Every product that yeah. we've imported. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Hmm. Yes, so that's the story there, and we had a conversation. Well, no, you, you didn't get to hear it. Talk with Brian Split on oh, Monday. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about, okay, so China's going to put more tariffs on, but pretty much... Our main commodity crops, soybeans, corn, cattle, milk, etc., you know, we're, they, they're not going to tariff us again. And Brian said, well, maybe not. What we've seen is that the price of soybeans in the U.S. have fallen enough that now Chinese buyers are finding them cheap enough that they can import them, pay the 25% tariff, and still come in, you know, comparable or a little cheaper than Brazilian beans. Right. And we saw that happen. Currently, there are two cargoes of U.S. beans headed over to China despite the tariffs. And Brian said if that continues, China will probably just ratchet up the tariffs on soybeans. Instead of 25%, yeah. they'll put a 35 or 40% tariff to keep Chinese buyers from bidding on American beans. Yeah, that was going to be my guess, too. And we've seen Argentina now buy quite a bit of uh, beans. And I think it w- I read somewhere it was about 10 to 15 tons and um, they bought that from the U.S. and then China bought about the same from Argentina this week. So oh, it like, interesting. Yeah. Yep. And I think I was talking on Twitter with uh, with Agridome, Phil up there. And, uh, you know, given the basis levels in North and South Dakota, why wouldn't Canadians mm-hmm. import beans into Canada at these cheap prices? Yeah, Canada's and also doing it, too, I think. Sell them yeah. over to China. Absolutely. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, let's see. Just to switch tracks here a little bit, 
Um, the EPA has launched a new website that's going to add or supposedly will add more transparency on how renewable fuel standards are functioning. This new website supposedly provides additional data about the prices and trading of renewable identification numbers or RINs and also updates on the amount and status of small refiner exemption requests or those hardship waivers that we've discussed so many times on the podcast. And according to AgriPulse, this is the first time that the EPA has made a lot of this information available. Uh, Just for example, the EPA didn't used to divulge information about those refiner exemptions, and much of the information known to the public about these waivers has been just due to media reports. So mm. looks like they're maybe uh, moving towards being a little more transparent, as Andrew Wheeler has said he wants to be more transparent. But a lot of the biofuel groups like the Renewable Fuels Association have said that this is not enough action. It's, you know, taking steps in the right direction, but still not enough action. Yeah, if you're getting screwed, it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to know how I'm getting <laughs> right. screwed. I'm just frustrated that I'm being screwed. Yeah. You know, to to use a metaphor, perhaps. That's a nice one, Mike. Um, and actually, Delaney, I've tried to find this website, and I haven't been able to make it turn up via the, the Google machine. The website? Have you seen it? Yeah, the new EPA website yep. with these RINs prices. Yeah, so the new website is just epa.gov backslash fuels hyphen registration Blah, 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 blah. I'm sure if you Google epa.gov slash fuels registration, I think you'd probably be able to find it. Also, the web page itself is called fuels registration, comma, reporting, comma, and compliance help. Okay, so it's obviously very easy to understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it looks like it is. I kind of looked through it earlier and I was like, nah, I don't think I'm going to be able to report from anything on here because a lot of it's yeah. like mathy and, oh, here's how you do calculate RIN prices and... More no. aimed at, at RINs buyers and sellers at the yeah. ethanol industry than at you, know, you or I, the lay people. Right, absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got uh, more trade news, actually. Believe it or not, it's a busy Friday for trade news. We've got uh, conversations that the deal with Mexico, rather than NAFTA as a whole, mm-hmm. might still go ahead. Uh, Congress has I said think... if Canada doesn't sign on oh. next week, we're just going to plow forward so, with uh, okay. Mexico only. So Congress does say that's okay, because I thought once that happens, no, you have uh, to go back. And issue right. another 60-day public commenting or whatever period. Yes. So there is a lot of discussion about how this would work. The initial proposal to uh, Congress that gave the president TPA or the, the fast-track authority apparently specifically said NAFTA, mm-hmm. which is being assumed to mean the three parties, Canada, Mexico, and U.S. If the U.S., pushes ahead with just Mexico, it seems as though the administration can do that. They can, they have the, the power and the, the little busybodies underneath them to go ahead and start pushing. However, it also means because there's some cloudiness that they will be sued and it okay. will eventually go to a court to decide whether or not this should be upheld in the current form or whether then, like you say, it'll have to go back to Congress for another 60 mm. days and it'll be a treaty and so Congress will have to weigh in, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> a lot of uncertainty, okay. but it sounds as though the administration is going to push through regardless of the uncertainty if Canada doesn't sign on and they're just saying, all right, sue us. You know, Canada, mm. you didn't sign on, bring it. This is the deal we're going to have. We're tearing up NAFTA come October 1st and, you know, yeah, take it or leave it. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. I don't. I don't know if that'll uh, put the pressure on them in a good way or a bad way. Eh. You know, who knows? But we also had another announcement today, and this was something that has been going on in the background. I I don't think anybody thought it would get this far, but the U.S. and India are getting close Hmm. to finalizing a free trade agreement. I didn't know that was even happening. Yes, it went into the works not long after the steel and aluminum tariffs were put into place, but Uh. I... I certainly never thought it would get this close to being a reality. Apparently, it is. We should have text from it here in the next few weeks. Both sides have come very close on a number of issues. However, it doesn't sound like it's going to be great for agriculture. In this initial deal, uh, basically, the Indians want to be able to sell us steel and aluminum without the tariff. That's what drove them to make this deal. And the U.S. wants to get in there for uh, medical device manufacturers. They've come under fire in India for making too much money. And the U.S. is trying to say, hey, look, these companies, they're selling a product, blah, blah, blah. Everything else is kind of in the background. Basically, it sounds as though India will be able to sell a lot more rice into Mm -hmm. the U.S. They're also looking for ways to bring Indian meat into the U.S. Bovine meat isn't beef. It's water buffalo. Oh. But uh, they're exploring ways to bring in certain grades of water buffalo meat into the U.S., regardless of whether or not India is free from foot and mouth disease. Mm. I think that's going to face significant pushback if that text winds up in the the final agreement. Uh, In exchange, basically over the long term, the U.S. is going to negotiate more openings for almond growers. Uh, Apparently, India is the world's top almond buyer. I didn't realize that. Mm -mm. I actually thought China was. I did, too. Cherries could get more uh, market space in India and eventually dairy products because India is a very high. uh, They're very quickly climbing in the amount of dairy they consume. So that Mm. might be some good news for our dairy producers. Maybe we can powder some milk and sell it over there. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. So that's that's the trade news I've got today, Delaney. Well, the only other piece of news I have for today, Mike, is some dicamba related news. So Bayer released some preliminary numbers here about dicamba usage for this growing season and said that it received about 75% fewer inquiries from growers and applicators about off-target movement of their Extendamax product um, this season as compared to last year's season. They said the number of inquiries fell from 2,767 last year to just 695 this year. And they had, they think, about 50 million acres treated with Extendamax this year. And the number of inquiries then translates to about 14 per million acres compared to 111 per million acres last year. So they said they said they think that we just saw a lot better compliance this year with label requirements. And the EPA is expected to issue a decision here in the next couple of weeks about whether or not uh, registered dicamba will be continued or uh, be able to be continued for usage in the growing seasons to follow. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase that Bayer's using there. Inquiries, mm-hmm. not complaints. They're saying these are people that asked how to comply with the label. Is that kind of how you understood it? I guess I didn't think about it that much, but yeah. So it could be that people are understanding the label and complying, or they're just not asking questions and doing right. whatever they want. I guess I, they I did. Guess I, yeah. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either. That, that's why I thought that was an interesting, interesting word they I, used. Yeah. That, you know, anytime you hear a weird word, you always got a question. Hmm. Why did they use that word rather than a different one? I don't know. That's a good point. I didn't catch yeah. it. But Mike, do you have any other news or should we hop into today's markets? 
Absolutely, Delaney. But before we get into the markets, listeners, stay tuned. We are going to have a trade discussion on the podcast, kind of a reverse of the way we've looked at, with, looked at trade. Delaney, don't you think we're looking at NAFTA yes. from the perspective of the Mexican consumer? And it's a very, very good discussion. Yeah, it is, Mike. I absolutely agree. We're talking to the author today of a book called Eating NAFTA, Alicia Galvez, who is a professor of Latin American and Latino studies at Lehman College of the City University of New York is our, our guest for today. And I think it's really timely and interesting as we're talking about all the NAFTA and specifically negotiations going on with Mexico in particular. Absolutely. So without further ado, folks, let's see where our markets closed for the day. And these markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zayner Group. Our thoughts go out to our buddy Ted Seifert. He was involved yeah. in a car accident earlier. Today he was rear-ended. So, Ted, we're pulling for him. And, uh, folks, get in touch with Zayner. Uh, Ted, despite the accident, is back in the office working with producers today to help them manage their marketing risk. So if you want that kind of commitment, give them a shout. You can reach them at 312-277-0050, or you can find them on the web at zayner.com. And we've got mixed trade to close out the week in the grain markets. December corn was up four and three quarter cents at 357 and a quarter. March up four and a half, finished at 369 and a quarter. November soybeans down three cents, closed at 847 and a quarter. January down two and three quarters to finish at 861 and a quarter. In Chicago wheat, December contract down two and a quarter at 521 and three quarters. The March down one and three quarter cents, finished the week at 540 and three quarters. Moving into livestock strength to close out the week in cattle, the October live cattle contract up 62 and a half cents at 113.0750. The December up 55, closed at 118.45. And feeders, front month, September, sowing some strength here, up $1.2750 at $156.95. The October up 80 at $158.07 and a half. A little weakness today in lean hogs. The October contract down 95 cents at 60.30. The December down 87.50 to finish the week at 57.40. And light trade today in the dairy market. In class three milk, September was unchanged at 16.14 with the October up three cents at 16.05. Without further ado, let's dig into NAFTA with Professor Alicia Galvez. Well, folks, for today's conversation, we are chatting with Dr. Alicia Galvez. She's a professor of Latin American Studies and Latino Studies at Lehman College at the City University of New York. And we're going to have an interesting conversation. We've chatted a lot about what NAFTA has meant from the perspective of U.S. agriculture. Dr. Galvez is going to walk us through what it has meant in Mexico. So, Professor Galvez, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get going, the reason we've got you on is you are releasing a new book. It will be out very shortly called Eating NAFTA. Give us the feel. What's it about? What subjects are you tackling in this book? Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, I am interested in this book and showing the other side of NAFTA. I think uh, those of us in the United States, I have a sense of how we think of NAFTA affecting uh, the economy, affecting uh, the lives of workers. Some of us are concerned about how it affects food and agriculture, but I think a lot of us really don't know the ripple effects on the other side of the border um, and how NAFTA has really completely transformed the health of the Mexican population. Let's talk a little bit about that. How has it transformed the health of the of the population in Mexico? It was signed, you know, uh, 
25 plus years ago, how has Mexico's economy and food, I guess, food security changed since then? Yeah. So we see um, the most dramatic indicator is the rise in diet-related illness. So we can see now in Mexico that diabetes is the number one killer. Um, it's a public health epidemic. It's both um, more common as well as more deadly than in the United States because a lot of people don't get diagnosed soon enough um, to prevent some of the more horrendous effects of the disease. Um, and we also see a, a really dramatic rise in obesity, which is being uh, framed by the Mexican government as a public health emergency because it's associated as a risk factor with so many other chronic diseases. Um, we've seen this really dramatic rise since NAFTA came into effect. Um, it's really transformed how people live their everyday lives, how they eat, what they eat, what's available to them. And it's also transformed some other aspects of life in terms of the rise of migration, separation of families, and these things also have a relationship to diet-related illness. Well, now, Dr. Galvez, I think uh, some listeners are probably going, you know, over the past 25 years, we've had a lot of confounding variables that could impact public health. We've seen, you know, the rise of smartphones and the Internet. People are just more sedentary. There's just, you know, kind of a, a lack of, of adherence to kind of the old ways of doing things. So in your research, what made you narrow it down to NAFTA as, as the primary or one of the primary culprits of the health crisis in Mexico? Right. Some of it has to do with the timeline, the way the timeline matches up so incredibly closely. Um, it also has to do with the very specific uh, transfiguration of the food landscape and the food system in Mexico. Um, we've seen with globalization uh, around the world, we've seen a rise in uh, consumption of ultra-processed foods. Um, and we've seen every country where uh, there's a, an increase in international trade and foreign investment, we've seen a rise in diet-related illness. Um, with Mexico, NAFTA provides a pretty specific natural experiment in which we can chart this, uh, this transformation and we can see the ways very specific policies have contributed to a shift in the average person's diet. So one of the most um, stark examples is corn. Uh, Mexico is the ancestral birthplace of corn. Many thousands of years ago, uh, humans uh, figured out how to pollinate uh, corn and develop it in the Tehuacan Valley. Um, and it became the staple food item of the Mesoamerican diet and remained so really um, until very recently, in fact, until the last 25 years, um, when we've seen with NAFTA um, a decline in the small-scale agricultural production of, of heirloom varieties of corn as well as consumption of a corn-based, milpa-based, as I call it in the book, diet. Um, not just corn, but the things that are intercropped in the small-scale uh, farms in which people uh, grow corn, uh, chiles, um, beans, squash in the same field, um, which is a very sound and sustainable way of growing. It's not, doesn't 
yield uh, huge quantities, but in terms of long-term productivity, it's a very sound way of, of growing sustainably. Um, we've seen a decrease in consumption of corn. We've seen um, Mexico have to withdraw its price supports and its distribution systems for small-scale corn growers so that people can't necessarily um, find buyers for their corn if they grow it and are trying to sell it. They can't find distribution for it. Uh, Mexico was obliged to dismantle its uh, food support system, both uh, subsidies as well as distribution systems, in order to get in on NAFTA. Um, and then what we've seen is a dramatic increase in importation of corn from the United States. But it's not the same corn. It's the kind of industrial corn that is grown most prevalently in the United States, which is really more suitable to industrial use. Um, corn syrups, corn starches, fillers, uh, sweeteners, uh, rather an animal feed, uh, rather than tortillas and tamales. Um, so this has really been a nutritional shift for the average Mexican person. Dr. Galvez, walk me through a little bit more then. So with going back to the agricultural shift, if they're not having these smaller scale farms or those aren't as prevalent, what does what are they doing for their agricultural system? Or are they more so just relying now on on NAFTA and agreements to get in some of those food products that they rely on? Right. Well, with NAFTA, what we've produced is uh, it's a trinational um, symbiotic system where we depend on each other to produce things that we need. Uh, in Mexico, there's a great need uh, for certain kinds of uh, food stuff because, uh, because of this dismantling of the small-scale agricultural system. Um, but in the United States, we depend on Mexico to grow uh, produce that we can't grow everywhere um, all year round. And so a good portion of the cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, mangoes, limes, lemons um, that we consume in the United States are coming from Mexican agriculture. Um, and what has happened is that NAFTA has encouraged, um, through very specific policy uh, shifts, it has encouraged the consolidation of Mexico's land as well as its producers into larger and larger industrial-style uh, farms. Um, in which uh, those products are grown for export. So paradoxically, NAFTA has meant that the average person in the United States eats a much more sound diet. We're able to access that rainbow that we are told to eat um, by nutritionists uh, year-round, no matter where we live. Um, I live in the Northeast, and I can get my avocados and my uh, peppers and limes all year-round, um, which you know, historically wasn't the case. So my nutrition has improved as a result of NAFTA. But when that, all of that energy, um, the productive capacity in Mexico shifted over to that agro-industrial export-based model um, and away from the small-scale countryside, it means that many more Mexicans are dislocated from their, from their land um, lose access to land or unable to grow subsistence crops, unable to afford um, the healthier products. And we see, for example, Mexico becoming the number one consumer of instant noodles in the world as opposed to their ancestral food, food waste. 
You know, and that's an interesting concept that I know you, you talk about in the book, kind of the swapping of diets. Americans are eating a lot more traditional Mexican food. I, I know you've mentioned avocados. You've mentioned the, the fresh fruits and vegetables that we bring up from south of the border. And at the same time, Mexicans are eating more of kind of the traditional American diet, the, the frozen meals, the TV dinners, the instant noodles, that sort of thing. As we look ahead, 5, 10, 15 years, every time we have a massive shift in in some kind of production, and NAFTA is the shift here, we've upended traditional folkways and the ways of doing things, things even out. Are we seeing a transition in Mexico? Are fruits and vegetables becoming more affordable to the traditional uh, Mexican uh, consumer? Uh, not really, not in the way that we might expect or hope. So when the food system was dismantled, um, in the, the, the food system that existed before NAFTA, um, in terms of the government's very robust role in being a matchmaker between producers and consumers and making sure that farmers could get their crops to um, urban centers where people needed them um, and needed them to be affordable, um, we see uh, that there's not as great availability or visibility or, or prevalence of farmers markets, for example. So the traditional fruit and vegetable markets that people would typically turn to to access their local produce um, are just simply not there anymore or they've been much reduced in size um, and, and availability. Um, and what we see is an incredible rise in uh, retail food distribution. So Walmart, as well as its offshoots, um, is expanding at a tremendous clip in Mexico. I believe it's the number one um, supermarket chain, um, as well as OXO, which is a little bit like our 7-Eleven or AMPM, uh, convenience stores, um, there are approximately 15,000 OXOs throughout the Mexican Republic with more opening every day. And these are stores that, you know, you don't go to 7-Eleven typically for your fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, these are stores that don't stock fresh fruits and vegetables. They stock a lot of uh, sodas and chips and ice and beer, um, convenience foods that can sit on a shelf indefinitely um, that are not great for health. Um, and so we see people really being less able to access uh, those fresh fruits and vegetables that were such a major part of their diet uh, not so many years ago. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I've I've seen plenty of OXO gas stations when I've gone down to Mexico myself. Um, I yeah. guess I guess the million dollar question that comes to my mind then is we're in the process right now of renegotiating NAFTA. Is there anything that can be done or should be done to improve Mexican diet? Or is it just this is how it is and you're just trying to create awareness for it? Yeah. Well, in an ideal world, I would like to see us um, as citizens being more aware and and um, concerned and, in fact, involved in the discussion of NAFTA. Um, in a more meaningful way. Uh, because of our political system, uh, when NAFTA was negotiated the first time, and just about every major trade deal since then, has been negotiated behind closed doors. 
because there's an assumption that with our democratic dialogue um, and the way that things get negotiated by legislature legislators, that there will be a lot of add-ons and sweetheart deals and, and pork essentially added into these deals. And so they're sort of negotiated behind closed doors by, behind, by deputized negotiators who bring to Congress a done package that Congress is able to vote up or down on. Um, because of that uh, fast track authority that Congress gave uh, the executive branch for negotiating these deals, most of us don't know what's being discussed. Um, and when it trickles out, we hear it in very black and white terms, in terms of concerns about uh, auto workers, for example. Um, but most of us don't realize, I didn't realize until I did the research for this book, all of the ripple effects of these deals into our everyday life, into onto our plate, um, into, you know, every aspect of every product that we consume, um, you know, there are so many ways that these deals affect our, our everyday life. And so I think if we can start having a greater conversation, not only about how these things affect our own health and the ways that, you know, corporations, in fact, are often involved in the negotiations, um, they are often getting their concerns heard? Why aren't citizens getting our concerns heard? Um, why aren't we being given more of an opportunity to uh, put our issues on the table and ask that these deals take into consideration our health? And if we're going to be responsible about it, we also have to think about how these deals set a tone and set norms that get adopted obligatorily by our trading partners because they can't get into a deal if they don't agree to them. And so when we're, our Congress people are voting on these deals, we're also making arrangements that are going to affect the lives of Mexicans um, and Canadian citizens as well. And so if we had a conversation where we were concerned about the health of everyday people, not just the profits of corporations that are really keen on profiting from these deals, I think we might have a much better conversation and a much better outcome. Now, Dr. Galvez, this is a huge topic. We've only been talking 15 minutes. We've barely scratched the surface. If this has piqued some listeners' curiosity, where should they go to find your book? When will they be able to find your book? And tell us, how can they get more information? Thanks a lot. So the book is... Um, Already, uh, it can be pre-ordered on Amazon, you know, any sort of online outlet. Um, but if anybody wants to go to my website or go straight to the press, they can get a discount uh, on the book. And the first chapter is available to download for free. So I encourage people to check it out, preview it. And if they're interested, to feel free to um, order it. And I would be happy uh, to field any questions or comments that your listeners bring. Fantastic. Well, folks, we have just wrapped up our conversation with Professor Alicia Galvez there at the City University of New York. Dr. Galvez, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Again, a thank you to Dr. Galvez there. Really interesting conversation. And if you folks are interested, I think the book comes out, what, this week or next week, Mike? Yeah, I shoot. We asked her. I think it was yesterday or it's next Thursday. Yeah, I think it's but, next Thursday. But, but anyways. Get on right. Amazon. You can find it. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, me too. I have a copy at home. I'll lend you. Oh, perfect. I love that. That's the best kind of book. I agree. Awesome. Well, hey, listeners, if you've got thoughts about anything we've talked about, if you've got trade thoughts, whatever, 
find us. Hit us up on Twitter. You can find us at Ag News Daily or on Facebook, also at Ag News Daily. Or you can visit the website at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.